If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From Cleopatra's fatal asp bite to Macbeth's bloody murders and the tragic demise of King Lear, Shakespeare conjured up a wide range of iconic death scenes. In her new book, Death by Shakespeare, Catherine Harkup delves into this grisly theatrical history looking at the real stories and science that Shakespeare drew on in his death scenes and how they might have been staged for Elizabethan audiences. I spoke to Catherine to find out more. Shakespeare killed off more than 250 named characters across his canon, so you've got plenty to work with here, haven't you? Can you give us an idea of the range of spectacular, sad, funny, tragic deaths that he served up? Oh, there are, like you say, there are so many. Two, over 250 deaths. I, I mean, a lot of them, the vast bulk, are at the end of a very sharp, pointy thing, be it a sword or an arrow or whatever. Um, but there are there is huge variety. Sad ones. There, there are all sorts of sad deaths. Falstaff's death always gets me. I mean, that's tragic. But it, it's also lovely in its own way because he dies at the end of a, a very wonderful and rich life surrounded by his his friends and his, his closest uh, people. So that's, I think, perhaps one of the better deaths in Shakespeare. But there's all kinds. There's capital punishment. There's wars. There's there's murders, there's murder mysteries, there's suicides, there's horrible accidents, uh, there's tragedies, poisonings, all sorts. There's so many to pick and choose from. I was absolutely spoilt and couldn't possibly cover every single one in as much detail as I would have liked. So why do you think that this is so interesting to look at? Obviously that these deaths were invented for dramatic effect. They weren't real um, events quite often. Sometimes they were. But why is it interesting to examine them in more depth? I think because... People have um, looked to Shakespeare for his extraordinary insight. And, you know, the fact that we still watch his plays, we still read his poetry 400 years later shows that they still speak to us. Uh, but lots of people talk about, you know, um, character motivations, their life outside the plays, his extraordinary knowledge of, I don't know, anything from apples to Italy. But they don't always talk about the deaths. And there are so many of them. And he he uses them in very interesting ways. They are dramatically important to the play, but they are also very accurate, by and large. I mean, there are some exceptions, but by and large, he, he goes for plausible deaths. And it's 
you know, why do you need to bother? It, it's a play. You could just have someone, you know, flounce on the floor and die. It doesn't have to be accurate, but the way some of the descriptions, it is, he paid attention and that I find extraordinary. You say in the book that, quote, in the Bard's day, death was a part of everyday life. How do you think that death was treated differently in Shakespeare's time than it is today? I think in Shakespeare's day, there would have been scarcely anyone who wouldn't have seen death up close and personal and would have seen people in their last moments, be it through disease, old age, or going to public executions. And there were fights uh, outside the the theatres, sometimes in the theatres. So death really was part of everyday existence. Today, it is very much sanitised and screened off from us. So it was an important part of life. And I think um, perhaps Elizabethan audiences wanted that. I certainly don't think they would have been shocked by anything that Shakespeare put on stage. Perhaps certainly not in the same way that perhaps we're shocked about it today. You know, plays like Titus Andronicus that everyone says, oh, it's absolutely drenched in blood. If you read some of Shakespeare's contemporaries, it's it's nothing. It's really quite tame. But to modern audiences, because we just don't see that kind of horrific violence up close and personal anymore, it, it looks shocking. So yeah, I think he gave he he gave his audience what they wanted, and he was extremely good at it. So you think that the Shakespeare's contemporary audiences would have been much more unfussed about gore, for example, in terms of stagecraft? Oh, hell yes. Um, I think they would have absolutely lapped it up just to get to the theatre, because most people lived on the north side of uh, the River Thames in the city of London proper. But the theatres were outside of the city proper because that way they could get around certain restrictive laws. So to get to the theatre, you had to cross London Bridge. And at one end of London Bridge, there were the heads of traitors displayed on the Great Stone Gate. You simply couldn't get there without seeing a decapitated head. So when heads are brought onto stage, you know, on the end of pikes or whatever, this is, they could compare it to what they'd just seen a few, you know, metres down the road. I I don't think you could shock them. You me- you mentioned earlier that Shakespeare was remarkably observant and accurate often in how he described deaths. But do we have any sense of whether that translated on the stage? Was there a sense of trying to make gory deaths, for example, seem realistic? For example, in quite in modern interpretations, quite often they are done stylistically or metaphorically. Was there a sense of of deaths being portrayed much more literally back in back in those times? I think it's very difficult to to judge what the intent of the the writer was or the the production was certainly they did go to great lengths to you know they had prop body parts just you know stacked up in the props cupboard so they certainly put in time money and effort into this there there are some wonderfully detailed descriptions of how you could reproduce blood on the stage and make it look effective so i think they did take care about those things uh, but within limitations because in the day actually even though they might have spent a lot of money on a, you know a few fake heads and fake arms the thing that really cost money in the theater was the costumes and you didn't want to wreck them with a load of fake blood because it simply it they would not stand up to washing so it is 
incredible that in the text itself, Shakespeare talks about how to distribute blood so that the audience gets the idea. They know what's happened, but you're not going to wreck the costumes. For example, in Julius Caesar, there's 33 stab wounds. That is going to create a lot of blood. But the audience don't need to see every single 33 knives go into the body to understand what's going on. So you can surround the person, you can see blades being drawn, everyone knows what's happened, and you have a pre-blooded blanket or sheet or whatever that you put over the actor playing Caesar, and everyone knows what's happened, that you've protected all your costumes. So it's difficult to judge what they were trying to achieve, but I think it was always, the audience has to understand what's going on. But the audience, certainly his day, as I said, they're going to be quite critical if they see an obviously crap fake head. You know, if it's just a joke fake head, they they know what it looks like or, you know, a fake hand or whatever. Without inventing a, a time machine, it's going to be difficult to judge how audiences would have taken it and what the intent was. But I think they were, they were much more sophisticated than perhaps we might give them credit for. This idea of um, audiences being all too familiar with the content of the deaths on stage is really interesting because something that dominated Shakespeare's life and times, the cities he lived in, was plague. Um, quite often, the theatres that he worked in were shut down due to plague. But we don't really see many plague deaths in his work. Why do you think that that is? Well, plague is so little used relatively in the plays. It is surprising, given how absolutely prevalent it was at the time. And I think there must have been a sense of plague is was awful. There's no two ways about it. They had no understanding of where it came from, how to treat it, how to protect themselves. So it was a terrifying time. And everyone knew what happened to plague people. I can't imagine there would have been anyone in a theatre who wouldn't have been touched by plague in some way. So they didn't need to see it acted out for entertainment. I think that was just too close, too real, when they could just walk out the door and see it for themselves. So plague, yes, it's referred to a lot, you know, a plague on both your houses. You know, it's a real insult to people. Uh, But there's really only one occasion where it's used, and that's just to halt the letter going to Romeo explaining that Juliet is faking her death and she hasn't really died. And that's it's just a plot point. It's just a means to an end. It's not discussing the plague in any depth because I don't think he needed to, and I don't think his audience would have wanted that. Mm. It really gives a different meaning to, to lines like a plague on both your houses or the disease-based insults which Shakespeare often deploys when you think Think that people had real life experience of those. Those those insults seem so much more punchy and and intense, don't they? Oh, absolutely. I think if you wished plague on someone, you really didn't like them. I play like I say, it is horrible, and there was nothing, very little they could have done about it at the time, short of closing theatres and you know having a certain amount of, of quarantine. Before we move away from the theatrical experience, I just wanted to ask you about 
deaths and dangerous situations in Elizabethan theatres themselves, because that's something that you talk about in the book. Can you give us some examples of how they could be a dangerous place to uh, spend your leisure time? Uh, I picked two famous uh, examples. Uh, One example was during a production of Shakespeare's Henry VIII play, not often performed today, perhaps because of what happened. It's associated with bad luck in theatres. So there is a moment in the play where a cannon is shot off to uh, announce the arrival of the king. So big important thing. So this cannon is stuffed with paper or whatever they've got to hand and it is fired. What the audience didn't notice on one occasion was that some of this paper stuffed into the cannon had caught light and it had set light to the thatched roof of the theatre and the entire Globe Theatre burnt down to the ground in the space of an hour. Now, that's a horrendous fire, Um, but what is even more extraordinary, considering they packed around 3,000 people into that building for a, a play, no one died. There was only one guy who was slightly, his trousers caught fire, but someone had a bottle of beer handy, so they just threw it over him and, and saved him. But I mean, that is incredible. How how do you survive that flagration? But anyway, so that's one incident. So it took the New Globe a little while to pluck up the courage, I think, to restage that Um So, yeah, I understand why it's not often performed. Another incident, it was a different company. So it wasn't Shakespeare's company. And I can't remember the play in question. But at some point in the play, um, someone was tied to one of the pillars that are at the front of the the stage holding up the roof. So he's tied there and someone points a musket at him. Now, for whatever reason, this musket was loaded. I I don't know why you would do that. I mean, it has horrible resonances with the recent news. Um, And they fired this musket towards the actor. Fortunately, it missed the actor, but it hit someone in the audience. And this was a pregnant lady who died as a result of her injuries. And that was... Well, I think that was unusual. That particular acting company kind of disappeared from the records for about a year. I think they kept a low profile over that. But that's the the sort of thing that that happened. But then there were pickpockets, there were fights, there were... I think going to a theatre in Shakespeare's day would have been much more chaotic than it would be today. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... All the characters within the play have to remain ignorant, and it's it's really it feels really modern when you read it. It's really interesting. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. You have one of the best appendixes that I've I've seen for quite a while, which in which you list all all the Shakespearean plays and then the characters within them and how they die. When you put it all together like this, what did it reveal? I think it shows the variety that he went for, but also the sheer number of deaths. There are, I think there's only one or two plays that get away with no deaths or references to it. Even the comedies, there are deaths or threats of deaths in the comedies. It is everywhere. So realising how pervasive it was and varied, I think... Something that you mentioned towards the start of this interview was the fact that Shakespeare was a great observer and a man of much knowledge. Do we have any evidence that he knew much in terms of medicine and science? Um, There are certainly hints within the text that Shakespeare knew what he was on about and kept up with current theories. There's a bit in All's Well That Ends Well where um, there is a very sick king who has been treated by all sorts of physicians unsuccessfully until a a woman comes along and cures him. And there is a a debate outside the king's chamber as to the merits of the two theories of medicine at the time. And it's quite coded. Um, It's coded by today's standards because we just don't know what those two theories were but I'm sure the audiences got all the references so there was the theory of the humours so you know when whenever Shakespeare talks about humour he is literally talking not just about a person's personality but their health and it was all kind of rolled into one Um, so you had to have a correct balance of four humours there was blood yellow bile black bile and phlegm and medicine basically sought to correct any imbalances so they would either bleed you or they would give you certain diets to improve your quota of one of the four the other theory of uh, medicine at the time was put forward by a guy called paracelsus or a guy who liked to call himself paracelsus and he was a contemporary of shakespeare's and he had this theory about everything being down to chemistry Now, as a chemist, I find that very intriguing, but his idea of chemistry is not the modern form of chemistry, but it was certainly a step in the right direction. So he um, advocated all sorts of remedies based on chemical or alchemical processes. So there are these two theories going um, on at the time. Neither of them, of course, referred to germs or, you know, actual causes of disease. Um, And Shakespeare quite rightly pointed out that it was, the treatments on offer were basically ineffective and positively dangerous in some circumstances. And I think he well understood that. He would have seen 
although it was most people were treated at home most people died at home and so they would have seen the effects of these medicines on their friends and relatives so they would have understood you know taking medicine often made you sicker it certainly didn't make you feel good um and he certainly picked up on that and he he uses wonderful phrases like throw physic to the dogs which is a wonderful phrase and probably sound advice for the time while we're talking about chemistry another focus of shakespeare's deaths is poison do we have a sense that he knew much about poisons and how much were poisons in the in the public mindset as it were at the time because I think today nobody really, really thinks about poisons or would think about using no, them. No, unless you're watching an Agatha Christie on TV. I don't think many people do give much thought to to poison. But And Shakespeare, bless him, he was very well versed in many things, but toxicology possibly wasn't one of them. Um, he He's a bit hit and miss with his poisons. So he either describes a bunch of symptoms that you can try and pick out what poisons might have been involved, or he names a poison and doesn't talk about the symptoms. So he talks about um, arsenic and rat's bane and things like that, but he never bothers with the symptoms, presumably because everyone knew, like, oh, arsenic, bad, vomiting, death. That's pretty much how arsenic goes. But the ones where he describes symptoms and he doesn't name things, we can have a guess. Um, and it's certainly possible um, that he was talking about real poisoning cases. Some of the symptoms are credible. Other times it's just like, mm, I think you're making this up for dramatic purposes, which is fair enough because that's the point of a Shakespeare play. It is for dramatic purposes. Um, it is not uh, a toxicology lecture. It is not historical um, fact. As you say there, these deaths were not intended to be historical fact, but many of Shakespeare's plays were, of course, histories and took their inspiration from real events, uh, especially real royal history. And in many of these, he portrays murders and he is quite happy to point the finger for real life murders at certain people, isn't he? Shakespeare, obviously, he is writing in an environment where the Tudors are in supremacy. And he has, because he is um, he is a playwright almost by royal appointment, he has to appease the person that pays his bills. So I'm sure there is a political slant to his interpreting of history. Certainly, you know, people like Richard III do not get a good deal because uh, they, they were not Tudors. <laughs> but things like Duke Humphrey, it, there was a lot of speculation when the real Duke Humphrey died. L- much like when um, Cleopatra died, there was speculation and historical record uh, offers various theories as to what really happened. So Shakespeare had choices and he chose the most dramatic because why wouldn't you? This is the point of what he's doing. So if Duke Humphrey, when he died, there was the possibility that he was murdered, why the hell not run with that? Um, because it makes it more interesting to watch. And also in the Shakespearean canon, like with many old texts, there are really interesting instances of people dying from from emotion, essentially, dying from a broken heart, from grief, from sorrow. I'm interested in your take on how we should interpret those deaths, because was there a belief that this really could happen at the time? I think there genuinely was a belief that it could happen, and to a certain extent it can. 
um, you know, we we certainly talked today about you know people dying of a broken heart, um, partners dying shortly after they're widowed or you know become a widow. I think it's it is certainly dramatic and it suits the narrative of several plays. But it wasn't such an outrageous idea that people would be standing in the audience going, what the hell is this? I, I think it is, even today, the concept of someone being so stressed, so distraught that their health is in, you know, impaired, that's certainly not so outrageous. I, it, in terms of the range of Shakespeare's death, it's the... The one that modern audiences, I think, can swallow easier than some of the others. There are some that haven't aged well. <laughs> can you give us some examples? For example, I would say um, one of the fa- most famous stage directions of all time, Exit Pursued by a Bear. I think modern audiences, when they see uh, The Winter's Tale and all of a sudden a bear just lopes on stage or an actor in a bear costume, that there might be a pause and a, a brief moment of where are we going with this? Um, What was Shakespeare thinking at this point? So it doesn't make much sense to a modern audience, but to Shakespeare's contemporary audience, theirs were a feature of the the Elizabethan environment, certainly in London, that bear baiting was a huge form of entertainment, which has thankfully died, you know, gone forever. But it was hugely popular at the time. And these bears were celebrated. They became famous. They were given names. They were taken to the pub. Everyone knew these bears. Uh, So, and when one of them got loose from a chain because they'd been essentially tortured for their life, they lashed out and they were very aggressive. So seeing a bear loose on an Elizabethan stage attacking a person makes a lot more sense 400 years ago. But today it does seem odd. What are some of the hardest to pull off in terms of stagecraft, do you think? There's one that I I genuinely don't know how they did it. And I don't think anyone really knows how they did it in the day. Um, And it's in a play that's not very often performed and not very often read. It's in King John. Um, And it's a very tragic death there is young Arthur who's essentially a child um, pretender to the throne lots of people want to get rid of King John and would rather have Arthur on the throne because they could control him so Arthur is captured and sent to Rouen Castle in France and Arthur expects to die because why would King John keep him alive so he's like well if I'm gonna die anyway I might as well try and escape So he climbs up to the battlements and he jumps from the battlements, knowing full well it could kill him. Um, But, you know, what choices does he really have? And so he has some lines on top of this battlement. And you can imagine that the actor, the boy actor, would be on the gallery at the back of the stage, which you can they still have in, in the modern globe in London. So uh, he would be standing up there and he jumps down. But you can imagine, well, okay, you you could kill an actor doing this. So maybe he jumps kind of behind something and there's a soft landing for him. But no, he has more lines when he lands. It's like, well, how do you do that? I so yeah unless they were just running through child actors at an extraordinary rate I I don't know how you stage that safely because he he needs to be visible for the next few lines but yeah so and there are a few of those it's like well how 
did you pull that off? So yeah, there's still plenty to figure out from 400 years ago. Some of these you can imagine Shakespeare writing, then the actors going, really? Yeah, Why have really? you made this so difficult? <laughs> I know. I, he tried his best, he seems to have tried his best most of the time. He was very generous to his actors in terms of, you know, giving them time to do costume changes, wipe the blood from their face, etc., etc. Then every now and then he throws in one like Arthur. That's interesting that you say he was generous to his actors because, of course, he was an actor himself. So I guess he kind of saw things from the actor's perspective as well. Yeah, this is something that I really grew to appreciate as I read more Shakespeare and more about Shakespeare was not just, you know, everyone talks about his beautiful language and it is it is stunning. His characterization is fantastic. His storytelling is wonderful. But just the stagecraft, the practicality of giving your actors. So again, in Julius Caesar, everyone is covered in blood it takes time to wash that off. So he gives his actors about 40-ish lines so that they can run backstage, wash themselves, and then appear back on stage to take over from the next guy who then has to go backstage and wash the blood off his hands. It's, It's just so well thought out. Shakespeare's death scenes have gone on to become some of the most revered and iconic death scenes in in theatrical and literary history. Why do you think that is? And also, I wonder if you could nominate one of your favourites. So in terms of them becoming so iconic, I think there is certainly a case of, if I can't imagine it, but if you come to a Shakespeare play not knowing what's going to happen, there are all sorts of dramatic twists and like, oh God, that person's now dead. Julius Caesar is in half the play. half of it he's dead for the other half um so all of these kind of dramatic twists and stabbing polonius behind the arras and all of those sorts of things it's like oh my god the the one person he didn't intend to kill and he's just killed him so and things that just artistically look amazing cleopatra clasping a snake to her breast i mean that looks visually very arresting so he was an absolute master like I say of giving the audience what it wanted which is really interesting visual uh, narrative and character choices Uh, in terms of a favorite death I I do like Duke Humphrey's death simply because the way it plays out, you don't see him die, but he is discovered. And a group of people gather around his bed and they basically look for clues as to how he died. It is like a modern murder mystery. Duke Humphrey, who is the kingmaker, he is extraordinarily powerful and it is extremely useful to many people that he is dead. So there's lots of suspicion. Um, and he's been arrested because he is essentially too powerful and uh, so it's not really a surprise that he dies but you have all of these characters around looking for signs it's like a forensic examination in a modern murder mystery they're like oh look at the hair it looks like he's been sweating and struggling because it's all disarrayed um his beard is disordered so maybe he was smothered look at the color of his face this isn't the color that the body should be and it's it's not a murder mystery in the true sense because everyone knows who done it because it's been massively pointed out in the previous scene. Shakespeare's like, it's that guy. But with all the characters within the play have to remain ignorant. And it's it's really it feels really modern when you read it. It's really interesting. 
that was Catherine Harkup. Her book, Death by Shakespeare, Snake Bites, Stabbings and Broken Hearts, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. You can find plenty more on Shakespeare's life and work at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.